You're listening to 101.9 FM, KPCRLP, Santa Cruz. Tony Duchesne here, and welcome to Drinks with Tony. My guest is Kathy Koja, author and presenter of the immersive novel, Dark Factory. Hey, do you want to co-host Drinks with Tony? Do you want a shout-out of your book at the top of the episode? Well, then support Drinks with Tony by joining one of the tiers of my Patreon account. The link is at drinkswithtony.com or go directly to patreon.com slash Duchesne. And you can support the show for $3 a month. If you've enjoyed the interviews, then please consider joining at any level. That's drinkswithtony.com or patreon.com slash Duchesne. You can really co-host a show? That's right. It's all in the info when you check it out on the website. Kathy and I talk about growing up in Detroit, how to create an immersive event, what is an immersive book, why it's important to fail, engaging all the senses, and so much more. Hi, I'm Kathy Koja, and you are listening to Drinks with Tony. Get on the Drinks with Tony show. You're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. Today on the show, we have Kathy Koja. She's the author of Dark Factory. Kathy, how are you? I'm fine. I'm fresh from the club and I'm all invigorated. You just got back from the rave? (laughs) (laughs) It's always a party at Dark Factory, right? Yeah, it's interesting that that on the book cover, it says presented by Kathy Koja. Yes, and actually, um, Trisha Reeks and I, Trisha Reeks of Meerkat Press, really thought, and we'll get into this more as we speak, but we really thought about how to present this as an experience as well as, I mean, it's a print book, but it's a lot of other things too. So we wanted to give people that feel right from the jump that, it was a little bit different. Yeah, I didn't realize I was tripping on ecstasy until I re- until it said, by the way, you just touched an ecstasy page. And I was just, <laughs> I don't know. Can you, I've never tripped on ecstasy. Can you, can you touch ecstasy and trip on it? Though it's acid. Not in you, my book. <laughs> acid you could touch. It's it, but ecstasy is something else. Why do I pretend like I know what drugs are when I, I have no idea? Anyway, we're having drinks now, and it's not drugs with Tony. It's drinks. <laughs> it's 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 uh it's antidepressants with Tony. That's <laughs> <laughs> not fun. It's just life. Yeah, where are you? Where where do you live? I'm in Detroit. Oh, cool. I, I you know I I like Detroit because I like the um the Detroit Lions. Is that the baseball team? No, the Tigers. I mean the Tigers. I like the Tigers. The Tigers are fine. The Detroit Lions have lots. Yeah, yeah, no, no. I I don't like, but oh my god. No, I said it's it's just animals. I got I got animal confusion. I'm a baseball guy. I don't like football. Yeah. Uh, No, Detroit is um, the home of techno too, which is right. We are the birthplace of techno, among many other things. So right. So were you like were you really involved in the music scene? I was not because I was kind of betwixt in between at that point. I had kind of exited the the really young partying years by then and was into the I'm writing books now years. So you can't I can't stay out all night and then sit down and do coherent work. It's just I'm not built that way. So if I had to pick, do I want to do coherent work or do I want to party? Right. But now I can. I can do both, right? Right. I think you picked very well because I'll go I'll go see punk bands once in a while that are like friends of friends or whatever. When I'm back in San Francisco, that's my hometown. I'm in Los Angeles now. And I'll see like a bunch of 50-somethings who have just not changed at all since the 1990s. And I'm just sitting there going, you know, and they're just like, yeah, punk rock. And I'm like, oh, yeah, you know what? I think I'm going home early. I think I'd rather read a book. <laughs> Well, and it, it shows, I mean, that's where you can see too in, in any art form or, you know, in your life form, if there's no evolution at all, it doesn't mean you're like, oh, I repudiate all the things I used to like or whatever. But if there's no evolution in your taste or there's no, what do they call that bit? Like the gold miners used to have those little sluice things, right? Where you would put a bunch of shit, a bunch of stuff right. in it 
gold dust. But the thing, the thing, the the sail oh, or whatever. Right, right. No, oh my God, it's a circular thing. Right. So I, I, I wish we gold. had a live. I wish we had a live studio audience right now because someone would shout it out to us. Pan for gold, whatever those <laughs> things were. For gold, yeah. do, right. Okay. And that's what we're supposed to be about when we're taking in all these different cultural experiences, right? You're supposed to go, and the older you get, theoretically the finer your mesh gets, right? So you yeah. keep more of the good stuff and more of the crappy stuff falls to the bottom. But if you still like all those exact same things, maybe your taste is not, maybe your mesh, you know, could be a little finer or could be. I do. You know, admit. I think some things are universal. I've loved David Bowie since I was, you know, a teenager and I will love him till I die. Right. So, but, but not everything operates at that level. I got to tell you, I never really listened to David Bowie. I mean, just the hits. I've heard them around until about mm. four years ago when I started listening to albums front to back. And I was like, oh, my God, Th these are brilliant. And even worse, I saw him in 1990 without knowing any of this. Song. And it's just like I saw him live and I didn't appreciate what I was seeing. And I am so upset with myself still about that. I know. And those those artists, you almost always, I mean, they're writers like that, they're visual artists like that, or filmmakers where you go from the jump, this person was someone worth watching. Does that mean that literally everything they do is great? No, nothing. Right. But they hit that bullseye far more often than they don't. And they evolve too. They continue to grow as, the, as an artist. And I don't know how else you continue to make good work if you if you don't grow. I, I became a fan of Nick Cave in 1990. And I'm like, he's still putting out like new stuff that's appropriate to like what he's, it's, I, I don't necessarily like, like it in the same way, but I'm just like, the guy is just still blowing my mind. I just went and saw him a few months ago and I'm just going, huh. I'm, gl I'm glad you got in my zeitgeist. And, you know, I, I did love Echo and the Bunnymen at the time, too. But you go see an Echo and the Bunnymen show and it's karaoke of 1985. You know? I know. And you 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 have to risk, too, when you're doing that, that sometimes your your fans or your followers or however you want to say it, that those people might not want to go down some of those avenues with you. Right. Yeah. Or they yeah. say, oh, I don't like that. Or right. Or play the hits. Or it's like. I have to, I have to continue to refine whatever it is I'm trying to do. And I can only do that by changing. And yeah. I hope you'll come along, but if not, what can I say? Right. Cause it's being, there's an, there's an authenticity to just being daring. It's, you know. And you have to be, you have to be able to try things and fail at them too. I mean, that's a truism, but it's a truism for a reason because it's true, right? You have to, but from where I'm sitting right now in a stone's throw away is a hallway closet where there are manuscripts that I could never finish. And after a while, you have to put them aside and go, okay, whatever was happening here, either I don't have the juice for it yet, or, and maybe I never will, or there's something wrong here and I can't make it work. And rather than continue to hammer at it, you put it aside, but it was worth it. It wasn't those things. I don't think are ever failures because you, you should be learning from everything you do. Yeah, I agree. I got, I got three manuscripts that I've killed over to my to stage. Right. Uh, but I, you know, I still have the, the folders and all the, the, the uh, everything in there, but I think, it's almost like I just still had to ride the bicycle. And then now what I'm working on now, I'm, I'm, I've been juiced up about it for a year. But if I didn't keep riding that bicycle and keep in shape, I wouldn't be able okay. to be working on what I am at the moment, you know? To start from cold is very hard Yeah. to just go, all right, I'm going to. And each, each project has a kind of a natural segue into the next. And there's always that little period in between where you're like, Ooh, where you're kind of decompressing from that and getting ready to do the next thing. But yeah, I would not like to see those periods go on too long because you do have to keep on the bike. Yeah. Did you grow up in Detroit? I did. Really? 
Yeah. How cool is that? Like, is there a lot of Detroit natives or do a lot of uh, people who grew up in Detroit, like bounce out to other cities or? It really depends. There's a, there is a core of, and I think it isn't only, um, only Detroit contingent, but it is also in like in Michigan and the Midwest, there are a lot of people who don't leave for different reasons. And some people are pulled, you know, elsewhere by their art or by industry or by whatever it is they're doing. And some people, I would put myself in this category. I just vibe with this place. I like it for everything it is and everything it's not. So, and what, and what is it and what is it not? It is very unpretentious. It is mm-hmm. very much a working town, yeah. which sometimes that gives a difficulty when it comes time to engage or uh, what to make space for art because it's very much a town about what can you make, what can you do, um, not not in a hundred percent commercial sense, but you know what I mean. It's like this is a, what you make has to have utility. Mm-hmm. You know that's why sports are. This is a huge sports town, except yeah. for me. But it's a giant sports town because that's something that okay, you work, you train, you go, you play. If you're the Lions, you lose. If you're the Tigers, maybe you win. But sometimes it has issues engaging with art on that basis because art has such a long payoff. Art huh. can can not always but it does have a long payoff and but there's something now it's i've never been to detroit but i have a feeling that like the art scene would be so tight like is that the case or no am i just am i just glamorizing what my what my theory of detroit is no and well there's a lot of that going around too um yeah it i think it it can be a fragmented scene like many small scenes are Mm-hmm. because it's like saying okay here are these kinds of songs and as they get more and more striated they become tighter and tighter and tighter right so you then you you started like this and then you end up like this with all the different little tributaries coming off it and i think art in general in smaller i don't like to say smaller markets but in smaller cities it can get into that real tight striation and I'm a pretty solitary worker anyway, and I tend to connect most with people who are working in in the same arenas or in the same headspace as I am, and whether they're contiguous to me or whether we're on two different continents or whatever. So those are the people I tend to reach out to and want to work with on different projects, like on Dark Factory. Yeah. That's cool. Um, because I remember this was maybe about six or seven years ago. There was a there was a big uh, well from like when I was in Los Angeles. There was like a lot of like musicians going. We need to move to Detroit and buy a house because housing was so cheap all of a sudden. And but I, it, me, I was just sitting there. I'm from San Francisco, and I'm like, I don't know if I could do that cold. <laughs> oh yeah, no, and it is, and a lot of people did that and kind of created, you know, that sort of created its own scene. But like anything, it any city that you come into, I'm sure LA is a marvelous example of this. It is this, and then when you get into it, it is something else. Yeah. And if you like the something else, then you like LA or you like Detroit. If all you liked was this you're not going to like it or you're not, you're not going to be able to get from it what you wanted to get from it or give to it what you wanted to give to it either. Mm So, but yeah, houses, well, they used to be cheap. They're not cheap anymore. So don't come Because all the Californians came in and bumped it up. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The, uh, what what, I was going to say something monumentally mediocre and I lost it. Oh, well. Um, the, uh, I had, I had the similar kind of vibe with San Francisco because San Francisco used to be a very working class town, especially with my great grandparents in the eighties. And it's just like, you know, South of market was just like, that's where you got steel work done. <laughs> you know, it's just like, and now it's all condos and it's, um, 
So I got to see a city and I don't mind it. It's, I have no problem with it, but I didn't know Los Angeles that well. Even though we're in the same state, it does feel very distant. It's totally different. Totally. Yeah. So when I first came to LA about eight years ago, in my mind, I was like, you know what? Because I do have my misconceptions, but I'm going to treat this like it's a European city. And I'm going to just be, I'm just going to be a traveler and pop in. And those doors opened and it was just like, and I need to give to the city. So I, you know, I need to put myself into the city and like, just be a part of it. And it's all of a sudden, it's just like, oh, Los Angeles is beautiful. And then, and then after that, it's like, and don't tell anybody. <laughs> well, and we're going to see, I mean, not to, not to go too far down this path, but we are going to see so much migration throughout this country because of climate change. And things are going to change a lot just demographically in the next 10 to 20 years. Yeah. It's be a completely different country. Yeah. It's and and uh you know, I'm okay with moving too. I've, I've <laughs> where where do we need to go? I just want to make sure that I got the same weirdos. Like I they, like I could find the same weirdos in the place I'm going to, you know. It's like and the cool. weirdos are everywhere. The weirdos I have found to my joy. It's like where are my people? Oh my people are everywhere. My people are everywhere. They're like yeah. Yeah, we're like are. mushrooms, right? We just we communicate underground and we talk to each other. And yeah, <laughs> I just found out about that the mushrooms talking to each other underground. And I need to watch. There's a documentary I need to watch. Somebody said fantastic fungi. It's so good. And that was yeah. I knew in like a you know sciencey kind of way that this was a thing that happened. But after watching that and after watching that communication, it's like, and then I found out trees talk to each other and yeah. all these things are talking to each other at all times and commute or communicating in ways that I had no idea, never suspected. And it just it, it calms you down and cheers you up at the same time to think that. Yeah, all this is going on, right? Right. It's it it, uh, it like it almost makes me feel like a little more um, connected to nature because nature is having their communications, and maybe some of our communication is not as intelligent as some of their communication, even though it seems like oh, we're coming up with these huge, great ideas, blah blah blah. And then if we really boiled it down, maybe we're not. Well, then that's the thing. It's like, we're the people who wrote the test. So we say what's smart, right? It's like, okay, being smart means to do this, this, and this animals. Can you do that? And they're like, name 10 smells. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wolf, <yes>. Dog. <laughs> right. There's, there's a lot more. I just chew right over your head. Yeah. So yeah, if the dogs and cats wrote the test we would get a very different grade. Yeah, exactly. And I always think of that when I think of cats, I always think of them as chain smoking Frenchmen where they're just like, what are you even looking at me for? Yeah, you know, nothing, you know, yeah. nothing. And that's I why I love cats. I'm just like, Oh, I want, but I want you, I want your, um, what do you call it? Your, uh, acceptance. I want it. So I know. Much. I want your approval, approve of me. And the cat's like, <laughs> I don't know. The, the cat that I live with now, his name is Dash and he's very, he has very strong boundaries. And he's one of those cats that if you try to pet him and he's not into it first, you get the look like, <laughs> what even are you doing? Yeah. Why are you doing that? Like, okay, never mind. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> You're great. I'm sorry. I'll just go over here somewhere. Right. Yeah. But that's why they're so great because they don't, you can't buy them. You can't influence them. They're going to do what they do. Right. That, that is kind of cool. And I wonder if that's why writers have, are so cat-like. I just feel like, like my, a lot of writers are just like, I got cats. And I do want, I do want cats. But I just have commitment issues. So you know, I'm still working on that. But it's, it is true. It, it is because living with a cat living with this animal that is doing its own thing is analogous to trying to do your work where you realize I'm not going to force any of this to happen. Right. Yeah. I, I'm going to go along with it and follow it and try to engage with it. But if I try to force something to happen, that's not going to work. That never yeah. works. 
Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And um, and when did you start writing? Oh golly, when I was a little tiny child. Yeah. Did you know yeah. you're a writer then? Like, did you sit there and go, you know what, I'm a writer? Once I knew, first I knew books, and then I uh-huh. knew that you could do things to make books, and that's uh-huh. like, oh, Katie, bar the door. A serious? You can do this? All right, get out of my way, you guys. I remember teaching myself to type like on an old school typewriter when I was, I don't know, eight or so because I couldn't handwrite fast enough. It's like, uh-huh. I can't, I can't make this work. It's just not enough. I'm going to have to get, you know, my parents bought me a typewriter and, and I don't have any, it's funny. I, I do know people who have emotional attachments to like machines like that, or like saying, I used to use, you know, this is what I, this was my first computer. This is what I have no attachment to any of that stuff because the same way that I don't have an attachment to, I mean, I love print books. This room is full of them. You can't see them from here, but they're over there, but I don't, I have an attachment to story and narrative. And that's what I'm interested in. And that's what I'll follow. If you give it to me in a different format, just show me how to use the format and I'm fine. I want, and I think format should complement with two E's should complement whatever you're trying to make. Right. And that was why Dark Factory had to be a book and an ebook and a site and all these other things, because that's what that story was it it had to put out all these different points of engagement in the world but it always had to and Trisha Reeks and I talked about this a lot it's like people have to be able to engage with the core story the story that's in the book Mm -hmm. and if they never want to look at anything else or read anything else or go on the site or do any of the quizzes or you know listen to music that's fine they don't have to um, we really approached it as an immersive experience. And in the, in my own experience of making those live events, you can put out a billion things and then you have to watch what people like, and they are guaranteed not to like everything you put out. They just won't. Not everything is going to engage everybody and that's okay. But you have to make sure there are enough points of engagement that People can come in at any level they want to and get something good out of it. That's interesting. So your experience in working in these immersive environments actually just all pulls to this experience of what Dark Factory is. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And because I have made shows in many different places, um, I had started working on, I'd written a book called Under the Poppy, a historical novel that was set in a Victorian brothel with puppets. So I had to do a huge learning curve. I had to learn all about the stuff. And when you say was, learning about did you, learning about puppets or learning about the history, learning about puppets, learning about the history, learning uh-huh. about what happened in brothels, learning about. Um, oh, I think I know what happened in brothels. Can I can I answer that? You well, you'd be surprised <laughs> at some of the things that happened. But yeah. the idea was okay. If I'm in a, the more I got into doing this, the more interested I got in the theatrical component of it. And then I started to learn more and more about immersive performances. And then I was totally booked. And I went to see Sleep No More before, when in its very first incarnation in the States, it came to through um, uh, in Brookline, Mass. And it was in a a disused uh, parochial school. And I thought, wow, okay, this is like literally walking into the story. This is fantastic. So I just made a bunch of shows afterwards and it was great. And it, it taught me a lot about that kind of engagement. How do you engage people? How do you, what do you need to offer to them so they will be able to get whatever narrative you're trying to, to offer but with enough detail that for people who are more curious or who do want to get more out of it or who do want to invest more into it, there's always going to be more for them to get. So what was the name of the show you saw in Brookline again? It was Sleep No More. Which Sleep is No More. A, okay. I'm not familiar with it. Yeah, no, it's a big thing. And it's mm-hmm. been in New York for years and years now. And mm-hmm. it's the, the original idea of the performance was... Um, it's Macbeth crossed with Hitchcock's Rebecca. 
Hmm. And now it's like, I mean, if you Google it, it's a giant hmm. thing that people have been going to for years and years in New York. And But I had been following the company who made it, Punch Drunk. And this was the first time they came to the States. And I thought, oh, I have to go and see this. I mean, I, I have to go and see how it how it's done when you have a budget. You know, let me see what that is yeah, like. Yeah, yeah. I learned from it and I brought that knowledge back and to Detroit and I made um, a lot of shows. And mm-hmm. one of them was Faustus in a, in a church, which was great because we put the devil on the altar. And, and it was so cool because the church, I'm showing them, I'm like, do you not want to see my script? You're renting me this building. And they're like, Kathy, we're Unitarians. We don't care. We don't care. If you bring the devil, we got, we got a little Satan coming into this. Are you sure about me? <laughs> you know, I know there, and they were, but they were wonderful and welcoming. And one of the things that I found both there and literally in every venue I ever used, the more engaged the people were who came out of the venue, the better the show would be because they knew that space very intimately and they could invite me in and show me things uh, that I would never have found and make that make the performance and the experience better for both us as performers and for the audience. So on every show I did, I learned from, and I thought, okay, this is, this is a way to engage people in narrative that a book, a print narrative has always been striving to do, you know, when you get lost in reading, but to do it in, yet another way there are other components you can add so so when you when you go into creating this immersive experience what are the components that but like what is there like a bullet list of like five things like you need actors we we need uh we need audio text like how how do you approach it i always start from the venue i mean you have the idea of what do you want to make what Mm. is the thing you're trying to make and then until I find the space to do it in, I won't know because the space gives you, the space is going to contain your world and you have to see what is it going to offer you. And just like writing a book, you are not fighting the space. You are not trying to impose stuff on the space. That never works. You are going to take the gifts that it gives you and work with that. And so in the space, you say, where are the ways that I want people to be able to engage. How are they gonna see the performers? How are they gonna be able to, um, for one example, I did Dracula in the basement of a very cool old building in Detroit that used to be a mercantile with like big show windows in the front. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the installation designer and I created the windows to be, one was Renfield's Madhouse and one was Lucy's Boudoir. And while people were standing out on the sidewalk waiting to come in to the performance, two different things were happening in the windows so they could start getting the feel of the story before they entered the space. And then I invited them in and I broke them up so they weren't with their friends and sent them downstairs to go have dinner with Dracula, who was waiting in the basement for them. So it was a lot of fun. It was a great deal of fun. And then, so they did have, you did have food. So you had to cook food for them as well. There was vegan food uh-huh. available, but no one ever ate it. Really? Why not? They never did. Wow. And the, Were they we scared? Had, Were they like, is this part of the art? It was a, it was a, it was a very <laughs> tense show in, in many ways. And uh-huh. the table was set. So the, the idea, the conceit was that Dracula is having this, you know, interview with Jonathan Harker and he's like a kind of a get up and go guy. And he really wants this job. And Dracula is watching him, you know, from centuries of hunger and boredom. And I mean, the whole idea was our tagline was appetite must be fed. And the idea was, you know, who gets to eat who, who's, who's, whose hunger is in charge here. So at every, so often we would move people one seat down at the table. So they were closer and closer and closer to Dracula. And it was, it was, I mean, even that you create this atmosphere and there will always be a couple of people 
almost without exception at any experience, they really resist. Mm -hmm. It's not that they don't want to do things, but sometimes the person in the corner who's watching is completely plugged in and they are just, so it isn't that they're, they're isolated. It's people who refuse to participate because they don't either, they can't buy into it or they won't buy into it. Mostly it's won't. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, Oh, go ahead. You, you can't do anything with that. I mean, there has to be, it is exactly like reading in that when I'm, when I'm writing something, the end goal is always to have that conversation with a reader, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. The end goal is for us to be talking together through the medium of this book. And if a reader is not willing to meet me halfway, it's not going to work. And the same with the people who, for whatever reason, who knows, maybe they were dragged along to something they didn't, you know, they didn't like or weren't down for or whatever. But there were always moments that you could tell nothing we do is going to engage that person because they won't, they refuse to be engaged. And, and it's alas, so intriguing that you took them away from the, the group they came with. And oh, yeah. that's, you know, that's, that's out of their comfort zone, but it also, it takes everyone out of the comfort zone. So then they relate to each other in a different way because they all have the same like status quo of we're all uncomfortable. It, it destabilizes them. It mm -hmm. destabilizes them from, it is not the experience that you thought you came in because there always has to be, I'm getting tired of hearing the phrase liminal space because everything is liminal space now. Right. I mean, the entry. That's the first time I've heard the phrase. So I'm oh not tired God. of it at all. <laughs> it is like everywhere where and, is and it? The real, the real idea of liminal space is that it's a, it's a zone of, it's like a, a no man's land. It's a place mm -hmm. where it isn't all one thing or all another. Like think of the moment before you fall asleep, right? Where you're oh, not yeah. asleep, but you're not awake either. You're, you're in this other zone. But the whole point of that is to kind of and destabilize is maybe too harsh a word, but to say you're leaving that world behind now and we are together, we are making this, you are making it too. We're not a show that we're putting on the show for you. We're all making this. And if we don't all make it, it will never be as good as it could have been. I mean, like in any music show, when the audience isn't into it or when they are into it, the difference is unbelievable. The energy of the room. You know, I just finished taking, I took clowning classes um, and the, it blew my mind. I mean, you know, people are like, oh, oh did you get a red nose? You're going to do birthday parties. I'm like, no, no, it ha that has nothing to do with clowning. It's just, it's intense and it's like vulnerable and it's, and you have to be, I, I just, I did it with the clown school in Eagle Rock. And it just reminded me as we were kind of coming out of COVID lockdown stuff, it was just like, this is why I live in Los Angeles. Cause I get to like, where, you know, I just like, I can do this stuff. And it just, how, you know, I'm, I'm not everyone, how almost everyone there was actors. So they're like, I'm work, you know, getting ready for my auditions. And I'm like, I'm, I'm the idiot that I'm just here to just check this out. And, um, but a lot of it was the whole concept that blew my mind was it's about seeing and being seen. And it's, so there was one um, exercise where there was 20 people in the class and they all sat in a semicircle and you had to go up and say, now I feel, and you had to be totally authentic. You had to look mm -hmm. everyone in the eye and it was the responsibility of the whole audience to look you in the eye. And the, the vulnerability was so, um, that, that, that kind of reminded me of the immersive experience that you were talking about because we it's and you have to join and there was one woman in there who was um she, when she did that exercise she was she could not stop shaking she was just and and the and our you know our instructor was really like really good at fine you know he's been teaching clowning for 20 30 years <clears throat> so he was good at fine-tuning pulling it back doing whatever to um but also keeping her up there you know not letting her off the hook and not letting anyone off the hook because it's, it's um there, there's a beauty to just letting yourself be like open to that. And it's just, and it's so scary, but we don't die. <laughs> it's just like, right. And you have to have a great deal of courage to participate on both ends because you're, you've, you've all agreed. We're going to, we're going to be open. 
We're yeah. going to be open no matter what, no matter what that costs, no matter what happens, no matter, we don't know what's going to happen. And yeah. there, I remember a moment at one of the performances, um, this was a, a version of Alice in Wonderland and the, it was set in a preschool and, you know, with the little tiny chairs and stuff. And people were wandering through the rooms and different things were happening. And in one of the rooms, there was a character, uh, we had decided that Tweedledum and Tweedledee, one of the, the other Tweedle had died. And so the Tweedle that was left was like going psychotic with like loneliness and grief. And that character could never leave the room. And, but people would come in and she was wonderful and engaging and cute and she'd paint your nails and give you candy and everyone was having a good time with her. And at a certain point in the performance, she was brutally murdered by the Red Queen. And at first when it started happening, people were like, what should, that's not cool. I mean, wait, wait, because everyone loved her, right? It was right. like, you're killing the Tweedle, you're killing, why are you killing the Tweedle? And when she died, and and we had talked beforehand, the performers, and saying, you know, you can't, you're going to be dead for the rest of the show. You, We have to put you somewhere safe. You can't be on the floor. You know, you have to be somewhere, like, but because everything's visible, you're going to be dead there for, like, another 20 minutes. So we have to right. put you somewhere. So there was this gross couch that we had got from one of the other, the lounge or something, and she was killed on that couch and left there, you know, like a poor little. And as the action moved on, literally everyone, and we none of us ever saw this coming, literally everyone stopped as you would at a funeral, at a wake, and touched. Like you would stop at the casket and they touched her or they would just pause and look down. It was all the hair stands up to this day on the back of my neck when I think of this, because that was something we never anticipated. But that was the feeling that was drawn out of people, that something important and, and sad had happened, and they wanted to acknowledge that the Tweedle, and everyone hated the woman who played the Red Queen. Like, wow. Bitch. Yeah. But that's, that's the connection you're going for every time. And most of that's out of your control, but that's what you're trying to do every single time. To, to, and to, to emotionally touch that many people. Now, do the actors do, do they kind of really rehearse or is it kind they know they have to do improv because there's people coming in that are there that aren't in on it. So it, it, like, how does rehearsal work? Just hit these beats and we'll hit at this. No, minute. there is. And, de you know, depending on, depending on what performance it was like when we did Marlowe's Faustus, we're using Marlowe's words. So there's a, you know, mm -hmm. a lot of, of dialogue, but you have to have the, the bones of the show and whatever needs to be spoken or conveyed, all that has to be what it is, but not, you know, not every performer can work this way too, because you have to be able to be fearless in a sense that people, and there's always people who want to be funny, you right. know, or, whatever that's you know are you, you talking mean, about audience coming in or are you talking about right the, yeah exactly in, you know, oh, i'm gonna always, poke you boo, 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 boo. right yeah, and yeah, they yeah. or they think they have you know or yeah. you know but that too is is a level of engagement and sometimes those are the people that might get the most out of it but that's the only i mean we engage through humor too when we're uncomfortable yeah you, know, you make a joke out of something yeah. because you're not sure how to handle it so you would have to be very savvy and very skillful. And I ended up working with the same artist over and over because we had developed that vocabulary of here is how we can engage people. And you do get, I mean, you can get a physical sense to what people do not wish for whatever reason to be approached, you know, maybe right. they getting the most out of it by standing in the corner and watching and yeah. to come up to them will disrupt that. But it taught me so much as a writer about how, you know, I've never liked that idea of I'm the writer. This is me putting my glasses. I'm the writer. <laughs> I'm like going to write these things and you're just going to read them. And that's how it's going to be. Right. Yeah. And I, I'm the monarch of this, you know, book and you're just going to, that to me negates everything that writing is supposed to be communication. 
Mm-hmm. It's not just, I wrote this stuff and you read it and like it. Yeah. You know, it, it's what are we going to make out of this story together? When you read it, you are going to get something, you may get something totally different than what I put in, you know, or what I, what I devised, because you're going to bring your sensibility to it. Right. And all your associations and all your, you know, memories and things you like or don't like. And Mm. when I teach immersive fiction, I talk about, remember that your reader is going to think differently. The example I always use is when people talk about a new car smell, that makes me personally puke. I can't stand that smell. Okay. So that is going to convey something completely different to me. I know intellectually I'm supposed to go, ah, the smell of luxury. Yeah. I can't stand it. So I'm going to have that push and pull. You as a writer don't know that, but you have to be aware that there's this huge spectrum, right, of responses that are possible to what you're making. And none of them you can control. Yeah. So so doing these immersive, setting up these immersive performances, just it, it must have completely changed you as a writer because it it's it's just it's um it would scare me almost <laughs> would, i'd be like oh my god writing really affects people you know we we get to just throw it to the zeitgeist and go yeah let it be but so yeah sometimes right. i don't want to think about it you know and that they can that the audience and you know i hated calling them the audience because it, it was not passive it was very much you know, we would call them patrons or, you know, patrons mm-hmm. are in the house. Let's, you know, remember before we would start, you know, yeah. but that in the sense of if someone is your, you know, your patron in the old sense, they're, they're giving you something to help you enable what you want to do. Right. I'm the patron of Michelangelo. So, you know, they're giving me paint money so I can paint, mm-hmm. but the sense of your patron is someone who gives you something that enables you to make this. And I mean, it's, it's the energy that drives a band. It's the energy that, you know, makes a book work with a reader that makes a show work. They're contributing their attention and energy. And without that, when I used to do school visits for my young adult novels, I would hold up whatever book I was talking about and go, you know what this is without a reader, this is nothing. And I throw it across the room and they go, what? but it's true it's like this is inner matter i mean it's like the same with any art right if i'm if no one is listening to me i'm abandoned in an empty room if i'm a film being shown and no one is engaging with me you know i'm the tree that fell in the forest right did anybody even hear me do i even have do i matter at all if no one is engaging with it and to have that kind of you know glasses on the nose saying here is my work and you not only is that I mean, it's rude, but it's also you're you're throwing away all this opportunity for engagement with people, and they're going to teach you. Like you said, it teaches you so much about your own discipline and process. It's a master class every time out. I bet. Wait, and you teach immersive fiction? Is that what is the, you? Teach? I do. I have. I do, and I this year a little bit. This year it's like all dark factory all the time. So I'm oh yeah, oh, that's great. But when you like when you're te- like so, what what is what is what is immersive fiction? I'm asking because I may want to take one of the classes, or someone else out there might want to because it sounds fun. But what's what what's the difference between like immersive fiction and then just someone just taking a fiction class? Well, some of it I start out talking about the idea of what is immersion. How do we experience life? as you know as creatures how do we through our senses right so you have to start with because to to be without more than two senses is to be considered like even legally disabled this you know you are you are cut off from avenues of experience that are part of what makes you you know a sensate creature so it starts there and saying when you talk and write about a character doing something, think about the where, where are they sitting? What are they wearing? What, and then move on to how are those details going to work for you? How can those details and those sensory experiences work to bring the reader deeper? 
and being aware that they're bringing all this, you know, new car problems with them and all these different associations. And then if you want to, and not every student wants to, to go in this direction, but if you want to then consider what other media might enhance what you're doing and is there a way to involve that, to make it into, to, to kind of enlarge, if that's not too grand, to enlarge the, you know, the definition of your fiction. Maybe your fiction does have another component as well. And so those are the kind of the stair steps to just to start thinking even about senses is huge, is huge. When you do your, going back to your immersive uh, performances, do you ever add smell too? Yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. Smell is very, smell you have to be careful though. And especially because people have different levels of if someone is sensitive to it or allergic right. or whatever, you have to be super upfront with patrons so they know coming in, this is what, you know, not just a disclaimer, but saying this will involve this. And yeah. you know, you, if that is an issue for you, you know, let us know or you know, be aware this is part of it. Um, I did a version of uh Christopher Marlowe's Edward II called Glitter King, and it was in the setting was in a gallery. And the idea was Edward the King is throwing a welcome home party for his lover, Gaveston and the queen and all the court is there. And so there's all this tension and bad blood, but it's like a dance club and everybody's in there dancing. And it's amazing Detroit musical legend playing and working with us. And the idea was you come in and the different factions in the court had, we had these bespoke fragrances created. And so the people who were on Gaveston's side all had this sort of, you know, funky, sexy, grimy smell. And the queen side was more like, you know, I'm all buttoned up and I have this really severe, you know. So it's, the idea was even if you were crushed next to someone in this dark club, you could still tell by the smell whose side people were on. And, and did, did people have to know that to enjoy it? No, but it was an extra layer, right? Yeah, it was just, yeah. actually, it was just a little bit more to say, yeah. okay, I'm, I'm smelling this funky boy. I think I know whose side he's at. I think I know <laughs> where he stands. So, and not every, not every performance is going to call for that, but it's really about, I mean, like with Dark Factory, we thought about what makes a club a club you know what mm -hmm. is intrinsic to the experience of a club and how can we present that to people and what's part of it what's part you know there has to be music and there has to be you know it has to be visually presented and there and there are a lot of other layers that we can add to this as we go along and a lot of other things that can it could potentially become but that's why the swag packs that went out, you know, had, they have the sticker and they have the temporary tattoo and they have the condoms because you have to bring condoms to the club. You never know. Right. So we tried to make it fun and surprising too. So people would have fun with that. Yeah. Enjoy themselves. You go to a club to have fun. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I remember I used to go to clubs to have fun. Now I go to clubs and go, it's loud in here. <laughs> <laughs> is there a cafe near here where i can sip some coffee <laughs> i know that and actually we had talked about because one of the characters in the book ari is super into espresso and mm -hmm. at one point we were like oh we have to find you know find a way to get coffee beans into the into the pack but again you never know who might have a, an allergy or an issue so we said okay we're not going to do the beans but <laughs> many things were considered many yeah. many things I used to write a music column for the San Francisco Chronicle and I was a college radio DJ up there. So I was out like three or four nights a week seeing bands. I've seen like thousands of bands. And, um, and part of moving to Los Angeles uh, was um, I was going to bring my crates of records, you know, cause I also had DJ gigs up there too. And I'm like, I'm 43 years old. What am I doing walking into a city with crates of records with people who don't know who the hell I am? Like up there, they'll be like, oh yeah, Duchesne. Well, yeah, I got, you know, down here, they're like, I don't know what you are or who you are, old man. And it's just like, 
there was a beauty to that. I was like, oh, wow, I think I've passed through a threshold and, um, and I didn't need to be out that much. And it just, and even going out now to bands, I really got to like the band, you know, or I even saw my friend's band um, they, that I haven't, I haven't seen, and I've loved these guys for probably, I mean, I've known them since the San Francisco days when they were in a different band. It's just fun to see them. They're from New York and they came to LA and I hadn't seen them in five years because of COVID and other stuff. Right. But I just, all I wanted to do was just talk to them. So I, I was like, just backstage, just chatting with them. It's just like catching up. And it was just wonderful. And then, and then we, and then we went upstairs and then they were on and like two songs in, I was like, and I'm going home because, <laughs> because all I wanted to do was talk to them. I, I love them. They're great. But it's just, it was, uh, I was just like, wow, this is who I've become <laughs> before. I'd be like, Hey, where's the after party? Let's go. And now I'm like, ah, oh. and it, I think too, the, one of the things that we did go to the clubs for, we do go to the clubs for not all, I mean, yes, of course we want to have fun. We want to have a good time, but there's always that feeling that something could happen, right? Like yeah, something could happen. I could meet someone. I could hear a band or a DJ or something that blows me away. Be, there was always that little expectation, right? That something magic might happen. You never knew, right? Yeah. That's why you get dressed and you, you know, you are playing music when you're getting ready and you're kind of, you know, excited beforehand and maybe you're having a drink or you're having drugs or whatever you do to make yourself excited. And you, all these things are part of it because there's always that little expectation, maybe, maybe. And which is sort of what the idea of a great band or of a great theatrical performance or a great film Yes, I want to be entertained, but maybe I'm going to get more. Maybe there's going to be something there that is going to resonate with me forever. Something that I could take away and that will be for me. And, and, and even in a book that if there's, that's the beauty of reading. I find reading books where it's just like every once in a while, there's something where it just, it hits my heart. And I think it just nudges me in a little bit different tra- trajectory on life. And I go, I make a little different decision about a thing. Cause I was touched by something in a book and it's just. And it seems as if it was written for you and you get to mm-hmm. that, that line or the sentence and go, Oh my God. Right. It yeah. strikes you and you have to stop for a second and then you go back to it and go back to it. And some, there are whole books like that sometimes, right. Where you're like, this was for me. This was written for me. So, yeah. but there's no way to like make that happen. You can't in any art form. I don't think yeah. we're not, you can, all you can do is create the conditions and, you know, invite the patrons in and then see what you guys can all make together. And I had done an event at a, a Stoker con a couple years ago before the plague and we basically all sat on the floor in this ballroom with this really gnarly carpet. And we sat on the floor and I kept bringing the lights down and down and down and down. And we did things like I gave people, I offered people um, books, paperbacks and said, read whatever on page 66, read something from page 66. And people would open them and read. And one person was like, mine is blank. And we all went, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> that was so weird. Like, oh, shit. Yeah. But even that, right? There was no expectation beyond we were going to you know, create this thing together. But because of what happened to be on those pages, and I had no idea. I did not know. I went and bought a bunch of, you know, horror paperbacks and brought them in and I had no you know I I would like to say I'm you know that clever that I yeah but it it actually would not be clever it would be trying to manipulate and something like that missing page 66 would never have happened if I tried to to plan that right so right it's it's about and some people actually told me the next day they're like I can't believe this is the book that I got because this is so cool or this is something I was looking for or and the, the whole, I mean, that's the, the animating idea too behind Dark Factory that I found out in the research, I was doing research about something completely different for the book, but I found out that the phrase Dark Factory 
is sometimes used for a workplace um, factory that's only robots. Huh. And they need to turn the lights on, right? Because yeah, robots, they don't need them. But that idea of working in a dark factory and the idea that what if what if that's what we are, right? That we are working and living and, and doing things in this landscape and there might be light available to us that we don't even know about. So, and that is, that's where the, not where the name came from, but that was another serendipitous thing. It's like, oh my God, I had several different ideas and titles for the book. And I asked my agent and he said, no, Dark Factory, Dark Factory is the best one. I said, okay, we'll do that. Because the club already had that name, the club and the book. Yeah, yeah. But finding that out was like, oh, wow, that, how apropos, you know, I didn't know that, but now I do. And it's, there's just a beauty to being open to that experience. And then it's just like, oh, wait, it was there for a reason. Page 66, was, it was blank for a reason. And I didn't even know it was blank. I didn't know it was blank. And we, if you try to manipulate these experiences, they'll never be as good as if you just, but the tension is always in how much do you shape and create because you want people to have a particular, you want them to have those parameters, right? It's like right. when you make a fabulous meal, I don't cook, but I, if I did, right. Okay. A fabulous meal and you want to each place setting and the, everything you want, everything to be not perfect because you're trying to be the best of, you know, cook and, and the creator of the scene, but because you want everything to reflect the experience you're trying to give to people. But you also don't sit there with them and go, okay, open up, open up. Okay. what you think of that? It's like, let them alone to enjoy what you've created and see what they make of it. Maybe everyone won't eat the appetizer. Maybe no one will eat the rolls. I mean, you don't know. All you can do is create the conditions and then take your hands off the wheel. I love that. Kathy, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Kathy Koja on Drinks with Tony. Check out her new book, Dark Factory, which is also an experience. John Bassoff is my guest next week. He is the author of Beneath Cruel Waters. Remember to support the show by joining my Patreon. That gives you a chance to co-host Drinks with Tony with me. Go to drinkswithtony.com for the link or directly to patreon.com slash Duchesne. Until next week, read, write, create your stories. They're important. You're listening to 101.9 FM KPCRLP. Santa Cruz. I got